there's a very big difference between your professional corporation, Evan, and the, the income it generates versus if Kim and Heather were in business. When it's, when it's just you and you have 100% discretionary use of the funds in your corporation, we'll go in and typically attribute it all back to you. I mean, barring certain um, required expenses, um, it, it's all going to be attributed back to you because typically for a professional corp, you don't have to keep money in the business. Now, when you're a 50-50 shareholder, you don't have that same, especially with an arm's length party, you don't have that same discretionary use of the funds in the company. Right. So there, there are very, it, that, and again, this is why you can't just take a blanket approach to to guideline income and, and say, well, I mean, they their business has a million dollars in retained earnings. We're just going to slap that back to them. Um, and there's so many, there's so many things that are wrong with, with that treatment. Um, and, and, and again, it's, it's really important to, to hire professionals to, to do this properly. Welcome to what episode number are we? Episode 14. Welcome to episode 14 of Access to Justice. I'm your host, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. My co-host is Heather Malarick of Merrick Law, and we are joined today by a very special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim is a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Uh, so first off, Heather, how are you? I'm well. We're filming on a Friday. I'm feeling a little, you know, relaxed. I've got the Friday vibes going on. How are you, Evan? Yeah, thank you, Heather. I'm well. The uh, We normally record this on a Thursday, so yeah, a little bit different vibes today. Yeah. And it's also like the beginning of loosening of COVID restrictions day. Yeah. So, you know, maybe in two weeks, we'll be able to go to restaurants with strangers. <gasps> maybe. It's not, I guess let's not put the cart before the horse. <laughs> Kim, how are you? Uh, I'm super excited. So I had a big exam yesterday. And then after my exam, I went to the store and I bought ice cream. And I'm going to eat the ice cream tonight. It's my big treat for having uh, like a really busy week. So I couldn't be happier. I know the weather's crappy out there, but I don't care if it's storming or raining. I'm going to find a TV program. I'm going to eat my ice cream. And I'm super excited about it. Because you have this weird obsession with adding post-nominals, which requires ridiculous ridiculously long tests for like every set of post-nominals yeah. like who that's not a lawyer goes through the collaborative law training kim kim does kim does and so i'm glad to hear that you are treating yourself to some ice cream to kind of heal some of that self-inflicted pain uh what kind of ice cream is it uh it is it's one of those little containers that's super posh. Uh, Ooh, like Ben and Jerry. Hagen Dazs. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. None of this domestic stuff. You went foreign. Yeah, I went foreign. <laughs> yeah. And um, oh, I can't wait till you bring in our guest because I have something to talk about with our guest uh, as soon as you bring him in. So okay. uh, do it right now so I don't lose this thought. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, we are a Canadian podcast with a mission to educate Canadians about the law. We interview experts in law, mental health, and finance, like today's guest. 
focusing on the topics that create the greatest barriers to entry in the justice system. You can find us on YouTube on our A2J podcast channel and online at a2jpodcast.com. That's A, the number two, and then jpodcast.com. We are pleased to welcome... Without further ado, today's guest, Jonathan Lacasse, PhD, CBV. Jonathan is a senior manager in Grant Thornton LLP's advisory services practice in Edmonton, Alberta, where he focuses on business valuation, litigation support, and corporate finance. As a trusted business advisor, Jonathan supports entrepreneurs and lawyers and their clients with determining a value for their business interests, financial need, or potential damages. And businesses can be complicated financially, um, especially when we use them usually as a tool to avoid paying taxes legally. And so what that generally means is finances get all crazy. And so that's a very valuable service. Um, so I'm looking forward to hear what he has to say about that. He's provided litigation support services to firms for personal injury, family law, wills and estates, and civil litigation, including breach of contract and business interruption. Jonathan, welcome. Well, thank you, Adam. Um, pleasure to meet you, Heather, as well. And, and Kim, thank you for the invitation. Um, super pumped to be here today. Yeah, we're, excited. we're excited to have you. Sorry, Kim, go ahead. Okay, now I can bring up the point that I was going to make. So I have the ice cream, right? And it is going to hopefully provide some energy because I compete on the Peloton machine in my basement. And if you look at Jonathan and his statistics on this thing, it's unreachable. So, um, you know, I'm going to eat my ice cream. <laughs> I'm going to think about Jonathan's stats. And I'm going to hit that, that machine really hard. I, I, I think you're being hard on yourself, Kim. I, I, I creep your stats too. And then you're, you're killing it. It is, it is a, for, for you, Evan and, and Heather, it is, it is amazing. Um, I was never a big fan of spin. Um, and again, this is not a Peloton commercial or any kind of ad here, but it, it is so much fun. Uh, my wife convinced me to get one or us to get one. And it is, it's incredible. And then, Kim, it just so happened that uh, the first time we were chatting about it, I was like, Kim, you, we got this Peloton, you got to get one. And she's like, no way. She's like, mine's arriving this afternoon. And so, and then since then she's, she's basically, I think you got a stretch there where it was like probably 30 days in a row. So yeah, uh, I'm going to go get myself a, a whole pint of ice cream now too. <laughs> Look at this competitive nature between us. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Good on you guys for knowing to limit yourselves at a pint because I usually will get a gallon and then I don't know when to stop. I, I was just, I was just saying a pint. Okay. I, I'm with you, Evan though. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I usually have to let someone else serve me in a finite container. Otherwise things would get out of hand. I blame it on my upbringing. I, I grew up in a large family and so Anything that was like a treat was rare and never enough. Mm. So you'd like sneak around, find where the treats were hiding, mm. maybe get an illicit bowl of ice cream when you could, but trying to like <laughs> make it look like nobody took any. <laughs> so. How did you do that? Did you just top it back up with sour cream or something? <laughs> Dang, what, where were you 15 years ago? <laughs> okay. oh, that would be a terrible surprise. <laughs> it would be self-sabotage, though, because I'd probably be the next one in there anyways, and then I'd be like, oh, dang it, the sour cream, I forgot. Frozen sour cream. 
Yeah. Although one time I like brought I brought yogurt to work, and uh, I opened it up, and I I dish it out into my bowl, and then I don't. I can't remember if I actually put it in my mouth or not, but it was not yogurt. It was sour cream in an old yogurt container. <laughs> so I, I think I avoided it, but I might, I might have put like a spoon in my mouth and be like, that doesn't taste right. Just block that one out of your memory, eh? So, um, you know, if you're going to put sour cream in a yogurt container, do everyone a favor and just label it sour cream. All right. Okay. Now with that out of the way, Jonathan. Um, so tell us what, so many questions already just from reading your, your bio. Let's start with your second set of post-nominals, CBV. I'd like to get to your first set as well, the PhD, but first, what is a CBV? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, great, great question, Evan. And I think we get that a lot. Uh, we had a nice little chat before we started recording. And, and the truth is, I mean, it, what it is, is it's, it stands for Chartered Business Valuator. Um, it's an accreditation, a designation. Um, it's recognized by a national body called the CBB Institute, which was formerly called the Canadian Institute of Chartered Business Valuators, so the CICBV. Um, it, this is the only recognized valuation designation in Canada. There is, um, at the last time I, I pulled stats, probably about 1,800 of us members across Canada and internationally. And it's a lengthy certification process. So it's almost akin to a master's program afterwards. There's six courses. There's a membership qualification examination. And you also require about 1,500 uh, hours of experience. And again, members similar to many of your professional bodies were required to comply with the CBB Institute's practice standards, our code of ethics, and we have annual PD requirements as well. Hmm. That's some intense training. Are there are there rogue business valuators out there that yeah. aren't chartered or <laughs> no, that would no. yes. There yeah. there is okay. plenty. Um and, and I think that's that's one of the, the key pieces and going back to the the I guess the benefit of the, the designation. And again, when you're looking at, at having somebody come in and, and businesses are, I mean, you folks are in, in family law. I mean, Alberta is, we, we have so many entrepreneurs yeah. and, and because we have so many small business owners, that also means that one of the largest assets to many matrimonial households is the business. Right. Um, so you have a lot of folks that, that, have their businesses, they often look to, to practitioners to value their businesses. Maybe it's for matrimonial reasons, maybe it's for um, business reasons. So shareholder disputes, um, looking to bring on um, different shareholders onto the company. Maybe it's, it's tax freeze purposes right now. We're seeing as a result of COVID, we're seeing that this has caused a depressed prices in a lot of uh, business values. And this is a great time to, to do some tax planning and, and get those valuations. But in doing that, there's a lot of folks that, that don't think they need uh, a CBV or somebody designated in this area. And, and where I think CBVs differ from a lot of folks that kind of tote themselves out there as, as so-called business valuators is that, I mean, like you said, we, we go through a lot, of, a lot of coursework, a lot of training to truly understand valuation principles. And, and it's important that just like it's important to, to hire somebody that, that knows how to manage finances and they can help you on the wealth management side, just like it's important to hire 
professionals that that focus on your area of law. Um, you you want to have somebody that knows what they're doing when you um, when you engage them to do that. Hold on, Jonathan. Let's let's stop you right there. Evaluating a business is easy. You take the revenue, annual revenue, multiply it by like five, and that's the value of the business. Like on Dragon's Den, right? right? Done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what? You you might be right. If if you're the odd tech company or something, maybe maybe you're in that right ballpark. Um, and and it's a great point, Evan. And I mean, I think this is where there there's the odd time where those those rogue business valuators or people that that do this off the side of their desk can they come to the right number? Absolutely. A uh, common one is three and a half times EBITDA. Um, and can it be right? Of course, it can be right. Um, but at the end of the day, you you don't you don't hire somebody and you don't sell your business or divide matrimonial property on a number that could be right. I think people want more assurance than that, and I think that's what individuals that are designated in a specific area like we are um, provide to their clients and to to counsel in the case of you folks. Yeah, well, I mean, the, you're so right. I mean, we we run into this as lawyers. If you've ever, if there's a lawyer that's ever tried to look at purchasing somebody's practice, they may be tempted to just do something like that. Well, there's not an inherent, there's not a lot of inherent value in a legal, in a legal service that is separate from the lawyer whose practice it is. And so to value it as if there is some kind of inherent value there, that's like multiplied that way uh, is very misleading. Like that, that that's very misleading. It's, that's dependent on how hard did that lawyer work the last five years. Um, well, I think what what you're touching on here, Evan, is is something we call personal goodwill, and it's it's very common to professional services in general, right? I mean, somebody that goes to to see and hires you as their family lawyer is hiring Evan. I mean, you may have uh, the the firm that you work for may have a reputation such that people come to your your firm, but at the end of the day, especially sole practitioners, and that value resides with them. You 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 kind of bring up the hit by bus scenario. If one of us were or the business owner were to get hit by a bus tomorrow, would that would that business continue on? Would it be as successful? Would those cash flows be there? Because at the end of the day, a prospective purchaser, which is the lens that we're putting on when we're valuing a business, is is what are the fu- what's the future value of those cash flows? And if they are entirely dependent on the business owner, um, there is no future value to that. And I think that's what a lot of folks, I mean, especially small business owners, need to wrap their minds around. Uh, when they're looking at a evaluation, it's that we we can come in and again we'll look at as a business valuer we'll look at the the company from a bunch of different um, aspects. We'll do we'll do a market approach. We'll do an income approach. We'll do an asset approach. And again, I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes on the valuation side, but the the idea is that we we take a kind of multi lens view of the business. And one of the biggest components to valuing a business is what is the what is the risk associated with it? So when you say a multiple, what we're looking at is the multiple is just the the inverse of what we call the capitalization rate. And without going into too much detail, the cap rate is just a buildup of risk. Um, and, and it could be what what is the what is the rate of return you're going to get to buy a business in these cash flows as opposed to going to the stock market and and buying index index funds. And, and as, as there's more and more personal goodwill, 
that risk comes up higher and higher to the point where it reduces the, the multiple and effectively reduces the value of the company. Hmm. A lot of people are not going to like what you're saying right now, uh, but it's so important to hear. It, it's, yeah. I think it can be painful to hear if you're a sole proprietor or like um, a small business owner where the business really relies on, on you. You are the business effectively because, you know, I, I, and I understand I have had small, I've, I've been involved in small business for most of my adult life. And I, you know, right now I'm a sole practitioner that's associated with Kahane Law. And, and um, I work very hard at this. And it, any success that I have is from, you know, from my hard work. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean that uh, what I'm building here has an inherent value. And I think there's a temptation for people that have businesses of that type of nature where they're service providers, especially, and it's just them. In effect, you own your own job. You don't necessarily own an asset that's producing wealth without you involved in it. And I, I think that's such a critical aspect to, to get across is that, again, it's, it's and it's not saying you couldn't, right? I right. mean, you could build Evan Clark Professional Corporation. You could have a whole bunch of associates underneath you and, and you could build a name so that your name is synonymous with Denton's. Um, might take a bit of work, but um, at, but at that point, people are coming and they're engaging Evan Clark Professional Corp without you. Um, and, and so what a, a lot of conversations and the benefit of, of being able to, um, as, as a part of the transactions group here at, at Grand Thornton is to, to have access to our transactional folks. So not only do we have a very strong business valuation practice, but we also work very closely and I, and I do corporate finance work as well. And so I get to put the, the corporate finance lens on, on the business valuation work that I do. And, and in doing that, what you see is you see the conversations I get to have with, with clients and business owners is talking them talking to them because they'll come to, to me and say, Jonathan, I, I'm looking at selling my business. And I just had this conversation two weeks ago. Um, it was an individual that ran kind of a, a very niche service. They provided basically training services for, in, in this case, it was, it was horses. And, and they built up a very strong name and they were highly reputable in their, in their industry. And I had to, to tell them, like, it's, it's great. And, and she had said, she said, we don't hire, I haven't hired any other people in this business because they can't do it as well as I can do it. And we often hear that. And that is fantastic because, I mean, people go to see this particular um, business owner because of the level of quality that they provide. Right. But now you put yourselves in an, in an exit point and who's going to pay for that? Mm -hmm. and, and at the end of the day, what we're looking at from a business valuation perspective is the prospective or a purchaser's lens. And, and it's, it's a tough conversation, like you said, Evan. Uh, business owners don't like to hear it. They love to say, well, I'm involved in every aspect of this business and nothing happens without my knowledge. Great, and, and you know what? I'm sure the business has thrived because of that. But now the best types of businesses that I look at when we're looking to sell businesses are the business owners that come in and say, you know what? I spend six months of my year in Hawaii and this business runs itself. Because that's what you want. That's what a prospective buyer wants. They don't want the risk of having all of their, their cash flows evaporate the second you walk out the door. Mm -hmm. Right. Just buy a franchise if that's what you want. Just buy a McDonald's. 
if you want to work in a in a job that you can eventually kind of grow out of, uh, McDonald's is going to be way lower risk. Um, yeah. You know, it's such a good point that you brought up, and I want to drop a couple book titles right now because if anybody that's listening right now finds themselves in a position where they're growing a successful business, but it's really reliant on them and they are involved in everything, first of all, they're probably exhausted, and it's okay to be exhausted when you're doing something like that. Um, but if you want to exit, and now you're like, well, I have no idea how to do it. Like, how do I exit from this thing that is like me. There's two books that I want you to read. One, The E-Myth Revised, Revisited by Michael Gerber. That's like a foundational book about small business. He talks a lot about basically whatever business you have, creating a franchise model out of it, whether or not you actually franchise it. That's not the point. It's the whole concept of being able to step out of your business and have it work for you. The other one is one that I just discovered this last year um, and it's called Traction by Gino Wickman and it is all about this thing called uh, the EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. He basically takes, picks up where Gerber left off. So Gerber talks about this is what you want to do and here's the principles and, and there's some useful stuff in there that you can like put into practice. But Gino Wickman basically takes it from there and creates literally an operating system for how to operate a business and how to grow from being small and how to step out and have other people, hire other people to replace you and learning how to basically, even though you are not replaceable, learning how to replace the parts of you that you can replace so that eventually it can become something that you can then go and see Jonathan and uh, take your uh, EBITDA and multiply it by a couple. So uh, we'll, we'll put a link there and I don't get any, um, as usual, we're not, we don't have any sponsors, but those are both two books that um, really opened up a new paradigm for me as a small business owner and operator. E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber and Traction by Gina Wickman. Have you heard of either or both of those, Jonathan? Those ones I haven't come across, Evan. No, I mean, oh. the, as you were mentioning those ones, the, the, the one and the reason one this one's so fresh in my memory is I was just listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast interview um, Jim Collins and that's the, the good to great and and those books and and again what a what a phenomenal author and, and individual and and I know Tim Ferriss has interviewed him twice and both of those interviews have been just just so informative and and seeing again the the lens of, of these individuals that are so successful at what they do but I'll, I'll definitely check out those books. I'm yeah, a huge Audible fan, so... Well, that's I just, why I got it, yeah, I got yeah. Audible. And then I ended up buying the Kindle version because I needed to use it as a reference and like listening nice. to it on Audible, like stopping and rewinding was just not uh, working <laughs> out for me. But one of the ways you can tell that Gino Wickman's good is he refers to a lot of really good other authors. Like he refers to Stephen R. Covey in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he refers to Michael Gerber and he refers to... Um, uh, good to great guy. He just said his name. Jim Collins. Jim Collins. <laughs> he refers to Jim Collins as well, as, as well as others, other yeah. authors um, too. And it's, uh, yeah, highly recommend them. So yeah, Jonathan, give him a read. I, I think you'll. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Heather, you should read those too. 
Anyone who has their own business. Yeah, no, I've I've thought about how the uh, sole practitioner lawyer business model is a little flawed sometimes. There's great freedom in it, but also (laughs) like you're putting on these shackles as well at the same time. Yeah, 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 exactly. There's no work without uh, without me. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, we got a little sidetrack there, but uh, regardless, that was like. It's a fun um, little diversion. A lot of information about why we, why you became a CBV and, and the value that you bring to those that type of a situation. Mm-hmm. Heather, do you have any burning questions? Yeah, um, I, I think you touched on this in the, in the introduction to Jonathan, but I guess I want to know, so we've talked about that situation where a business owner might be selling a business, but what are the other situations where someone might be getting a business valuation and do you approach different situations differently? Yeah, actually, great, great question, Heather. Um, so, so again, I mean, we, the number of reasons. I mean, there's so many reasons why we, it's, we get hired, mm-hmm. um, and and many of those. Again, you you touched on in the introduction the the litigation support. Obviously, the the two of you are are in the family law field. So, mm-hmm. the reasons why we would be involved in in your particular files. Um, or that some of your clients, I mean, may look to to hire a CBV if if they own a business or perhaps their their uh, ex spouse owns a business would be to to quantify the business. So again, right. we're looking at at attributing value to um, privately held shares. The other one would be on the guideline income determination side. So uh, again, I mean, the the child. This is not legal advice. I'm not a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, but the the guidelines are built around T4 employee income, right? Um, and where, like we said, I mean, many of Albertans are self-employed individuals. And, and what the courts have acknowledged is that oftentimes individuals going through a, a divorce, having full control over how much they pay themselves, mm-hmm. they choose to pay themselves less. Right. Um, so the, the courts have acknowledged that and allowed them to pierce the corporate veil and, and go and, and take a look through, through different adjustments at attributing income from the corporations to the, the payer spouse. And, and so oftentimes the, the, this may be straightforward or it might not be. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where um, many folks will come and hire uh, CBV as an expert to, to go in and do this. Um, let me just, let me just uh, back up for a second, Jonathan, because you said pierce the corporate veil, which is a great term that, that we use. I just want to explain what that is for in case people don't know. So one of the reasons that you would incorporate is that it provides um, limited liability, provides some protection from getting sued or getting in trouble because of something your corporation did. The shareholders are limited to how much they can lose by how much money they've put into the corporation. Not only that, but directors and officers that operate in the corporation also have some protections from that. So we call that protection at law, we call it the corporate veil. And um, many people over the years, as I'm sure you can imagine, have tried to pierce that veil, tried to get through that veil to the person behind the corporation because the corporation maybe doesn't have enough assets to, to make it worth it to sue. And the courts again and again have reinforced that no, that corporate veil, you can't get through it. There's only very rare instances where they do. There's very like limited circumstances where the court will allow the corporate veil to be pierced. And one of those, as Jonathan just alluded to, is 
in family law context where somebody is using that corporate veil to hide assets and income um, when they have a uh, responsibility to be paying child support or spousal support. Just want to provide a little, uh, little background on that. Yeah, and sometimes I guess, at least in my experience, it's not even necessary sort of nefarious that people are trying to hide anything in the corporation, but they've, especially if they're sole owners, that they're kind of blurring corporate and family, personal expenses together, and it all just becomes a bit of a muddle. So um, you can help out in those kinds of situations, Jonathan, where... Um Absolutely. And I think yeah. to your point, Heather, I mean, it's, it's not always nefarious. I mean, uh -huh. the, they, they still have to abide by, by CRA standards and, uh -huh. and many of those expenses are in fact legit expenses. Now, again, through different adjustments of the, the guidelines, there's the ability to, to assign personal benefit on some of those and, and again, add those back to their, their guideline income. And again, the whole point is to take them back to treating them the same as a T Ford employee. Right. And, and so, yeah, those, I mean, those are, those are the ones that are, um, I guess, relevant to the family law context. Uh -huh. Obviously the, the other reasons why you would, you would involve, um, CBVs in litigation. So there was breach of contract, there's business interruption. Uh, I also do pers a personal injury damage quantification and, and again, those are those are for the the litigation support on the on the kind of corporate finance and valuation world. Uh, again, I mean, we we bring a very different lens than than accountants do. We bring a very different lens than the entrepreneur does. I mean, I I will never claim to know a business as well as the the founder. But that said, I mean, we all have our blind spots, and then the founders may be very very good at doing what they do. They've obviously built their business, but there are some certain valuation principles that they may not understand. They may not understand the differentiation between personal goodwill and commercial goodwill. Um, so, so oftentimes it is important to, to have those conversations, right? It just provides a different level of, of understanding and a different aspect of, of what they do. Just like we're able to complement what you folks do for, for your clients. Um, again, we, we don't take the place of lawyers. Um, as, as experts, our duty is to the court. It's not to the clients. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, many times, sometimes counsel and sometimes clients don't, don't realize that. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there's, I think experts often have a bad rep of, of being hired guns. And, and there are hired guns out there that are out there to advance a very specific, their client's agenda. Mm -hmm. um, but, but my duty as an expert is to the court. I will take the information and I will produce in my professional opinion what a uh, value of a business is, what the, the guideline income should be. And again, I make that presentation to the court for the courts to make the decision. That's why we typically give a range because, again, that's, that's for, for the judge to decide. Mm. I think what you're saying would provide a lot of reassurance to the the other angle that we haven't brought up yet the spouse the unknowing spouse married to somebody who has a business and they're trying to figure out is my spouse hiding assets how do we make sure that we get a proper valuation i think what you're saying is we have the tools to look under the hood and see what's going on and we're going to do things to the best of our ability to give you a correct and accurate answer and um, I think that's a, a lot, like many people contact me about divorce and they're all 
they all, all have fear. They all worry mm-hmm. that they're not going to get their fair share. So I think that's absolutely critical. And that kind of segues into my question about contesting evaluation. So if we have a professional come in who gives their valuation and um, <laughs> the other side doesn't like it, what happens now? Yeah, no, great question. And the only thing I would add to your your comments as far as the qualities of of what a, a CBV brings would be the unbiased piece. Again, if we're doing our job properly, it's we are we are unbiased. We we are as much as we may be retained by one side, we are not there to to advance a number on to to their best in sorry I, I take that back not to their best interest again we're we're coming in our duty again is to the court to our own professional standards and we take all the information in and we produce our reports now from uh, your question Kim I think the um, the the ability to come in and again so there's different ways to do this so one side goes and gets evaluation um, now the other side is that maybe they get this through counsel maybe they get this on their own and they're looking at this and they're like well I don't I, first of all I don't know if this is right um, maybe they did hire a, a a hired gun right one of the ways that we can do this Kim is to to do a limited critique report and in what we do in this case again as it's named limited critique that the scope is limited we we have the the benefit of the report we've been given we go through we look at the um, the designation the qualifications of the expert that provided this report we'll go and look at the assumptions that went into that report and again provide counsel or perhaps the client um, if they're on their own the um, a summary of that information. These will often go hand in hand with a rebuttal report and a rebuttal report oftentimes will go in and basically we'll come in and do our own business valuation that is intended to to rebuke the the other report. Um, as I've seen the and you guys are, are would know much more about this. I think the courts uh, are undecided on the usefulness of limited critique reports. Again, the, the scope is limited. Um, so oftentimes what I've seen is that the rebuttal report carries a bit more weight. And, and this is our duty as, as experts. The other way we can go about doing this is our role more as a, a consultant. So this would be, as opposed to maintaining kind of an independence, um, this would be kind of having somebody akin to somebody in your corner um, using a boxing analogy. And this would just be, you hire us as a consultant. We we're, we're never presenting evidence to the, the courts. We're just here to consult. You would receive the report. We'll kind of give you bullet points. We'll advise you on some follow-up questions. We can advise you. Um, there, there's a number of ways that we can provide value at, at that point. Interesting. And uh, th- this is kind of a tough, probably a tough question, but would somebody use one of these mechanisms versus the other because of cost? Like, is it cheaper to have a consulting rule versus to have a full rebuttal? I'm, I'm guessing there's probably some cost differences here. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, so again, to, to hire, to hire me to do a full guideline income or to do a, a full business valuation, typically those are somewhat fixed costs. The consultant piece would be more an, a power by the hour type of approach. So we would be on call, 
um, and and you would pick up the phone. Hey, Jonathan, we got a guideline income report. Can you have a look? We're going into questioning next week, or hopefully a little more than a week's notice, um, and and provide us with some questions to either maybe question um, the opposing the the business owner or or the spouse, um, whatever that might be. That's a phenomenal service, I think, for a lawyer who is nervous about business valuations and, and not sure how to approach the conversation. Uh, I think that that's very cool. Well, I think, I mean, as a timely example, I mean, I think I was on the, the phone last night till about seven or eight with, with counsel that was going into uh, to uh, a JDR today. And, and again, we were just chatting about some of the, the points from uh, another expert's report. Again, it wasn't, I wasn't brought in early enough to, to provide expert evidence and to, to do a rebuttal report in this case, but, but we spent some time talking kind of strategy with respect to uh, what, what is the appropriateness of some of these ad backs when it comes to section 19 adjustments, which are the, the ad back of personal benefit. Um, and then uh, again, just, Give them a sounding board because oftentimes, I mean, you guys have read these reports. Um, you you understand them to a certain extent, and sometimes it it just takes having the 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 lens of a CBV and and what the other expert was thinking and the the appropriateness of a lot of these addbacks because oftentimes as many clients going through this, and I'm sure you folks have seen, it's like, well, that's that's not true. And I can't believe they're attributing that back to me because clearly I didn't get a personal benefit from that. And it, it's just a matter of, and, and oftentimes I'm sure you guys do a great job of trying to talk them off the ledge. And, and sometimes what, what I found, at least in the conversation last night, is I, I had to, to tell the client. And I mean, I realize this, this doesn't seem fair. Um, but in this case, this is what they're trying to get at. This is why it's appropriate. This is why it's not appropriate and, and arm them with, with information. Because at the end of the day, as long as we have the information, we can make good decisions, um, hopefully. But a lot of the times I think people are scared. I mean, divorces are, are emotionally challenging times for, for everybody, um, the parties involved as well as all their professional advisors. And I think the more information that we can have delivered to these individuals in, in easy to explain terms, I think is, is, is the key piece. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't a ranching operation, was it? It was not a ranching operation. Um, just wondering. Okay. Um, I, there's a couple of things I want to kind of tease apart here that, that we've discussed kind of, um, lumping them together, which is uh, at least for family law, there's two separate issues when it comes to businesses. One is what's the person's real income that's running this business or you or getting benefit from the business? What's their real income? And that's where you're talking about adding things back that have been written off for um, tax purposes. And the other question is, as an asset, what is it worth? So like we were talking about how, okay, a solo law practice might be worth zero, um, but that there's still income that could be coming in from that business that needs to be um, adjusted in order for it to be appropriate, the, not, the income to be appropriate for child support or spousal support. Can you just talk to that a little bit? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, again, there there is these two separate instances where we we provide um, services. One, like you said, is is the guideline income report, um, and and the the whole purpose of this is to go and look at what is available for distribution for the purposes of child and spousal support. Um, so oftentimes, small business owners will depending on tax planning, will pay themselves maybe a combination of salaries and dividends. Um, maybe maybe they won't pay themselves. Maybe they, they don't need the, the cash to, to maintain their, their lifestyle and, and they're basically building most of that wealth inside their, their corporation. So again, depending on the type of business that is, and this is very important too, because it's not just in another file where we were brought on in a kind of critique capacity, this individual um, did a blanket add back of every single expense. So they basically said spouse's revenue equals their guideline income in this case. There was there was 15 line items along the, the expense on the income statement and the majority of them were indeed legit business expenses. Um, so it really is important to to have somebody that understands what they're doing. It's not saying that we may not say, you know what, as a as a rule of thumb, it could be 30% of, of travel or it could be 20% of fuel. Um, it's not saying that we won't take kind of a, a round number if we don't have the, um, the, the exact information. And again, the onus is on, I mean, you, again, not legal advice, but the onus is on the payer spouse to prove that these are legit business expenses. And this is something that, that many folks often don't realize as well. Um, you can have the other side and their experts say, all of this is added back and you can say, well, I didn't benefit from that but it's, it's your job to prove that in fact, you, you didn't benefit from that. This was given to clients or used to take clients out. Um, so that's the process we go through in the, in the guideline income. And that is a separate port, uh, report. That is an expert report that goes to, to counsel that we prepare for the courts. Now the business valuation, piece, and again, you, so we're dealing we with, to, uh, oh, yeah. sorry, before you get to the business valuation, I have a follow-up question about that. Yeah. So there is, what you just said is absolutely true that the onus is on the business owner to prove that expenses that are proposed to be added back or to prove that their income is what it is because if they, the policy reason being they're the ones in the best position. They, they have the knowledge. It's their business. So uh, the court requires what we call Sweezy or Cunningham disclosure. And Sweezy and Cunningham are just two unfortunate souls who owned a corporation and got divorced and uh, you know now their names are used to as hallmarks of of the type of disclosure that needs to be provided. And so my question is, do you is that what for your your um, the income report that you do the guideline income report is that part of what you do the Sweezy Cunningham type of disclosure that the court needs. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, again, I mean, we, we don't make any type of, of reference to, to case law in our reports, but obviously we're, we're, 
experts to the court and, and we follow in the sense we follow the, the guidelines, right? I mean, we're going through, we're looking at section 17 adjustments. So pattern of income, we're looking at, at section 18 adjustments. So a corporate income that, that is undistributed. We're looking at section 19 adjustments. And in each of these cases, we just walk through them one by one. And, and we'll look at, I mean, section 16 adjustments are, are very specific and they're, they're laid out um, the, the non-taxable portion of capital gains, the, the gross up of dividends, these are pretty straightforward and, and you don't necessarily need a, an expert to, to help you with those. Where I think we, we often provide a lot of value as CBVs are on the, the section 18 and, and section 19 adjustments. And, and again, we, you're absolutely right. I mean, whether it's, we walk through the, the, the Sweezy and Cunningham decision and, and pick those apart. Our, our goal is to go back to the, the owner operator and ask the questions so that we're able to make a proper assessment of whether or not section um, adjustments are, are applicable. I ask that because, you know, I, I use this sheet that was prepared by our last guest, Mr. Ken Proudman, who does a lot of work in this area um, that is specifically to satisfy the requirements from those two court decisions, Sweezy and Cunningham. And uh, I'd say, here, take this to your accountant and fill this in. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just wanted to make sure that we could say, take this to Jonathan, and he'll help you get this filled out. Well, I think I think that's that's a great point, and I think if if you if you don't have somebody that specializes in in doing guideline income reports, I think those disclosure in that checklist, and I haven't seen Ken's uh, um, checklist, but but I imagine it's it's quite thorough, um, knowing Ken. Um, and 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 it, what it does is it again, it's it's not that it bypasses the need for an expert because I think there still is value in what we're able to bring, but it does allow. Um, you folks as lawyers to go and request this documents from the owner operator spouse. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so to be clear, you prepare that report and you could help with something like that as opposed oh, absolutely. to. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now that I, you satisfied those questions, carry on about the evaluation, please. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, the, the the business valuation. So oftentimes the largest matrimonial asset for for many homes, um, and and so where we would come into play is is again the the way I value a uh, a business for matrimonial purposes would be no different than any other reason we would want to value privately held shares or in any corporation. Um, where it gets a little different with with family law would be where we are and. And I'm not sure if you guys have jointly retained experts in the past, but there are instances where um, we are jointly retained by both parties. Um, and that's something that's quite unique to, to, to family law in this case. Um, and, and in which case, again, what we're looking for here is um, to request the information required for us to generate an, uh, a calculation, an estimate, uh, an opinion on the, the value of a, a business. So to go back to, I guess, my original question, I think you've answered that. You don't look at evaluation of a business through any different lens or in any different way um, in a family matter than you would if someone was looking for a value for sale or to buy a business. You're, you're always using the same principles to put a value on that company. The same principles, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, again, valuation principles are valuation principles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. 
Okay. We, we touched a little bit on um, information that you typically go to an accountant for. So looking at financial um, data, you generally don't have a CVV at your fingertips during your the course of running your business, but you do have an accountant. Yeah. So uh, I know this is a, probably a tricky question to answer, Jonathan, and, and try your best at this, but what's the, what's the difference? When do you bring in an accountant versus a CVV and, and do you guys work together? How does that, how does that go? Yeah, I mean, I, I so I, I work for an accounting firm. Obviously, Grant Thornton LLP is is an international accounting firm, and and most many CBVs um, are part of their advisory groups. Um, I, I'm not personally an accountant, um, so where I, I can't speak to to what accountants do in in these particular instances. Obviously, I mean, many accountants are our business owners, trusted advisors. I mean, how many of us have been with our accountants for however many number of years? And I think as a business owner, and I'm sure Evan, you can, you can speak to this. I mean, you, you rely on them for, for so much. And oftentimes that's business advice. Um, oftentimes it, it's tax planning advice. Um, and, and they are very good at what they do. Um, now, as a CBV, what we do, again, I, I spoke about kind of the, the, the vigorous education that we go through learning business valuation principles. We, we learn how to essentially quantify risk in a business to a certain extent using both qualitative and quanta, um, quantitative uh, factors. And so we, we spend years learning and, and hours and hours behind us in valuing business after business. Um, your accountant may be very familiar with your business. Um, and, and we often work very closely with the accounting team. Um, and then we will, uh, many of our clients internally, um, we, we do business valuations for them. So, I mean, for, for these folks, the, um, even though that we are very separate from the, the accounting group, um, we're able to get a lot of our information from them internally. Um, that said, our our practice standards and our duty is to our own professional body and and we we provide independent business valuations so in the in the context of of matrimonial um we we provide a different service than your accountant would your accountants can speak to your financial statements they can speak to certain maybe certain expenses that were were expensed in the company um but whether they're qualified to to basically generate the value of your business? I, I don't think so. I mean, like you said, many folks will issue opinions and many accountants will issue opinions on the value of a business. Um, but I mean, there, there are many individuals that have been in this business for a very long time that their, their gut is, is, is bang on when they're valuing companies. Um, and there are many individuals that I think stretch past their, um, their, their skill set and their understanding. And it's the same reason why I don't go and I don't give legal advice. Um, I, I'm not a lawyer. I don't pretend to be a lawyer, but you and I work very closely together if we're building a, a case and, and working on a file for one of your clients. Mm -hmm. And I think the other thing would be kind of perceived bias. I mean, again, you have somebody that's, that's knows your business has been providing advice and support for one of the parties typically sometimes both for 10 15 20 years it's tough not to have them be biased um and and i think that's that's another key part too yeah that's so, a really good point. heather and kim do you have uh, 
Uh, any other questions? I have a question that's going to take us off topic a little bit. So before I do that, I want to make sure. I have a situ situational. <laughs> so I was, uh, I like to go on this website that tells you like most searched, like most words searched on certain topics. And there was a lot when it comes to businesses, there was a lot of searches for people looking to protect their business prior to jumping into marriage. And I thought, Oh, I've got a CVV. I've got the lawyers. How do we answer this question for people who are maybe jumping into a second marriage? We know the stats aren't good on those. Uh, what, what do you do in that scenario? Well, and, and for this one, I mean, this, this is probably more in, in Heather and Evan's court with respect to kind of prenups and protecting yourself. Again, we can come in and we can provide values at, at points in time. Often when we are brought in, in these kind of situations, we're coming in and we're valuing businesses kind of um, pre cohab or uh, pre-marriage uh, back a, a few years and then at the current date. So uh, again, we can come in and we can value at different points in time, but the I think the real answer to your question, Kim, is um, Heather and Evan are in a better position to answer that. Yeah, Kim, it's a prenuptial agreement. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Or, or cohabitation agreement if there's if marriage is not contemplated. They're the same idea, yeah. but uh, just take into account the different laws that apply in Alberta uh, and how it works when you're married. There's some nuance there, but but yes, that it and a lot of people shy away from it because, well, you know, who wants to start a relationship talking about how it's going to end? Nobody, but I can tell you the clients that I do prenuptial or cohabitation agreements for, usually they've already been through a divorce. Um, and so, and, and it's gone, it's been very difficult and they just want to avoid any difficulty. There's some positives to, to say for it, um, you know, as far as communication goes and everything being clear going in, what people expect to happen with the business yeah. as the relationship starts. Uh, anything you want to add to that, Heather? Yeah, I, I mean, it just makes a lot of sense, too, when you look at financial challenges are often one of the things that lead to or are really linked up with relationship breakdowns. Um, even though it's maybe not a sexy topic at the beginning of a relationship, it could be really good for your relationship to have those conversations about money and your business and your expectations at the beginning rather than at the end. So, um, you know, I think some people go through marriage prep courses and talk about communication and children and relationships and all those things. But I think finances are, are probably an important part of those conversations too. And yeah, I was just thinking I had a client who called me yesterday about a cohab because I helped with his divorce. And he said, I remember you telling me this, that I want to sort these things out ahead of time and not after the fact. So yeah, really, really smart to think about. Yeah, it's important. And there's, there's also, um, they're a little bit complicated corporations when it comes to property, especially where there's third party, like arm's length, third party individuals yeah. involved in the corporation, things get messy. It's not so clear. Um, and there are, and one of the challenges that exist is what happens to the corporation when 
like, let's say you're, you're not getting a divorce. Everything's great. What happens when the person that in the relationship that's involved in the corporation dies? Yeah. I, I think, I mean, kind of, kind of akin to your, your discussion about, um, prenups, I think, I mean, how many business owners do you ask? Do you, do you have a, a USA, a unanimous shareholder agreement? Mm -hmm. And, and it's terrifying how many don't. Um, Can, you Can you explain what a unanimous shareholder agreement is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, not legal advice. I'm sure. I'm sure you folks can give a more uh, a legalese description, but it's essentially an, uh, an agreement between the the shareholders of a company that that outline how the the company is going to handle various outcomes. So, in the event, as Evan said, in the event of a shareholder death, in the event of one of the parties getting divorced, in the event that somebody wants to, to exit. So, imagine Kim, you and Heather are going into the biz, going into business. You're going to start up. I don't know a, a new a new retail store. They sell um, widgets. There we go. Sell widgets. Nice and nice and generic. I like that. Um, and, and again, it's, it's, you guys are all friends. Everything's great. This is a great idea. Um, you all decide to, to invest a certain amount into this business, but what happens when things go sideways or if they go sideways, or if one of you folks, your, your horizon, your timeline and your, your exit strategy changes, maybe something happens in your family and you're like, you know what? I don't have the time to invest in this business anymore. I need my capital out. How do you contemplate that? Mm -hmm. And and I think oftentimes that it's like, like the prenup it, it's, these aren't conversations people want to have going into this. Cause you're all excited. You, you don't want to sit there and envision that the, the worst case scenarios, but the truth is, I mean, we've, we've all seen when, when, things are vague. Maybe it's a will that's vague. Maybe it's a shareholder's agreement. Maybe it's a prenup that's vague. Yeah. And then all of a sudden now you're going to, to litigation and they're like, well, I didn't want to pay the money for, for a shareholder agreement. When we started, it was $4,000. We had better things to do. And now you're sitting, I don't know, 10 years later and you're shelling out tens of 20, $30,000 in litigation to, uh, to figure out who should be bought out for what. Mm -hmm. I like your analogy to a prenuptial agreement because it really is similar in some ways. It's, mm -hmm. It can be more, Absolutely. Well, first of all, a unanimous shareholders agreement is any agreement that um, all of the shareholders sign on to. That's what makes it a unanimous. There we go. The legal, the legal description. Thank you, Evan. So it can cover anything. Normally, what they cover are the things that, Jonathan, that you just talked about, which are exit strategies. What are we going to do when things go wrong? How do we get out of this? What happens when somebody dies? Somebody gets, goes through a divorce. And so that those decisions are made before you're in a crisis. Yeah. Um, so those are commonly what's covered, but it could be anything. And, and there's some technical... Um, it, like technical requirements in order for them to, in order for this agreement to operate the way that you might want it to. So it is very important that if you are thinking, oh, I need one of these, go see a lawyer that does these types of things because there are, chances are you're going to mess it up if you try to do one of these yourself. It's, it's a pretty complicated and technical document. But it is a good idea to think about how you want to handle those types of situations. Um, just to give you an example of, this is really can be an area where Jonathan's, Kim's, and my world really intersect. And that is because uh, insurance is a great tool 
to use for the management of succession in a, in a corporation, um, you know, and how you can buy out a widow or widower in the case of somebody dying, that's a director or, or a shareholder, sorry, of a corporation and how that all works. Um, who gets that money if, if, you know, if the corporation owns it, you know, and all the details of how that works, there's, there's ways that that can all be handled so that um, in a divorce or in a death or, you know, everything can go smoothly and everyone gets their money and everyone's happy. Um, Kim, do you do any work, any insurance work associated with succession planning for corporations? I think it's it's pretty much always on the table if somebody owns a business. So how do we have insurance in place if a business owner becomes disabled? They need to buy out their partner. If they die, they need to buy out their partner. Um, and of course, there is a lot of value to life insurance contracts for business owners and in so many capacities. So it's almost always a conversation. Now, they can be very expensive policies to put in place, so they don't always go through, but almost always the conversation is there just educating business owners because there is insurance is tied to the business so if the business isn't going to be around forever then sometimes that insurance policy may not be the the right fit but for certain instances but you're absolutely right Evan it always needs to be discussed people always need to be talking to accountants and CBVs and lawyers and insurance people and um, financial planners like they're it just everybody's got their well, I mean, if you want things to go smoothly, if, if you want to plan how things go and like make it go a certain way, yes, you need to talk to those people. If you don't care about what happens, <laughs> then, you know, what ifs? But I mean, like one example, like one issue that, that I, I can think of right off the top of my head is for something like getting an insurance policy, like key person insurance in case they die is, okay, where's the money going? Who's it going to? Is it going to the surviving spouse or is it being paid to the corporation and then to the surviving spouse who now owns the shares because they got them in their will. And I think, uh, and you can confirm this Kim, but I think there's different tax consequences depending on who gets that, how that money ends up in the hands of the surviving spouse. Mm -hmm. That is correct. Okay. I, I feel like, though, this is a long conversation. And for our episode on insurance planning, we can yeah. dive into yeah. uh, the CDA and all the cute things we can do on the insurance side. But I like where you're going with that, Evan. Okay. Great, okay, great future podcast. Yeah, right, right. Let's write that down and then circle back to that. Um, okay, I, I have my off-topic question. So last, last call here, Kim and Heather. Oh, Yes, I have a question here. So I think many people don't know how it looks to equalize a business on a separation divorce, mm -hmm. whether shares are moving over to a spouse or a cash is no. moving over to a spouse. No shares. I would love for you guys to comment on what's common so people can just wrap their heads around this. If they are thinking about divorce separation and they're trying to wrap their head around how all this works, what, what is their stake in the company when everything's split up? So there we go. High level. <laughs> well, I think I mean I that this is uh, a discussion for for tax professionals as far as how best to do that from a tax perspective. I'm I'm sure Evan and Heather, you guys have seen a a nice plethora of of different ways this is done that have worked out well and mm -hmm. and perhaps not so well. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, usually on a relationship breakdown, people don't want to be in business with each other anymore. And uh, giving somebody shares may seem like a good idea to somebody, but if if the relationship, if it's not like totally amicable and they're parting ways, which does happen, that can happen. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. They're not usually my clients because they don't need me. But, you know, most cases, and I'd like to hear Heather's thoughts and any anecdotes, most cases that would just be a total absolute nightmare and probably encourage some kind of scorched earth business practices. Yeah, I mean, what's divisible is the equity of the marriage, if you want to think of it that way. So there's no requirement that the business is divided in half, but each spouse is entitled to, I mean, absent a whole bunch of other things, but generally speaking. So each spouse is entitled to half of the value. That doesn't mean they're entitled to half of that company. Um, So that's probably where Jonathan comes in because he's the one who can give them some information and say, well, I think it's worth somewhere in this range. Um, And maybe people are more commonly trading that off against other assets than like the family home or retirement funds or any other pluses or minus they might have in their columns. Um, Although anecdotally, I do um, have a file where there's a family business, um, shares were held unequally, and they are equalizing the shares between the two of them and are entering into a USA or United Shareholders Agreement that is specifying how they're going to run the company together for the next foreseeable future. So they are getting along rather well. They've operated the business together for a really long time and they have a bunch of common interests and reasons why that's working for them. But that's maybe a bit of a rare situation. Yeah. Yeah. It probably is pretty rare and you know, some people can do it. And, And you know, I've certainly had a client where like a client. I certainly had a small number of clients where really they have a really good working relationship with uh, their partner. They just needed to kind of square things away. Uh, but for the most part, they can work well together. But even that, those clients, I don't know of anywhere they still want to be a shareholder with. Uh, so definitely rare, definitely rare. And if we take one step further, going back to kind of the USA where maybe there's more shareholders, right? And and arm's length parties. Um, then, I mean, like you said, I mean, maybe Heather and Kim went into to business together. That doesn't mean that if if Heather or Kim get divorced, that they necessarily want to be in business with their respective exes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's again a, a key reason why putting in place things like USAs are, are are critical when you're when you're operating businesses. And they're also a critical part of of how I and then CBVs look at businesses. I mean, when we're even even going back to kind of guideline income, there's a very big difference between your professional corporation, Evan, and the, the income it generates versus if Kim and Heather were in business. When it's, when it's just you and you have 100% discretionary use of the funds in your corporation, we'll go in and typically attribute it all back to you. I mean, barring certain um, required expenses, um, 
it, it's all going to be attributed back to you because typically for a professional corp, you don't have to keep money in the business. Now, when you're a 50-50 shareholder, you don't have that same, especially with an arm's length party, you don't have that same discretionary use of the funds in the company. Right. So there, there are very, it, that, and again, this is why you can't just take a blanket approach to, to guideline income and, and say, well, I mean, they, their business has a million dollars in retained earnings. We're just going to slap that back to them. Um, and there's so many, there's so many things that are wrong with, with that treatment. Um, and, and, and again, it's, it's really important to, to hire professionals to, to do this properly. Um, because the last thing you want to do is put yourself in a position where maybe you thought you were doing the right thing and you ended up leaving uh, a whole bunch on the table. Um, and, and again, I, when it comes down to it, we want, we want assurance that what we, I, I'm not saying the number that I'm going to give you is the exact number, but what I'm saying is that, again, we want to know what the, the right range is, right? What, so that we know that somebody's looked through the proper documentation and that we're not sitting in the dark. Mm -hmm. And this is the same kind of conversation I have with folks that are looking at either buying or selling businesses. If, if you're going to, to buy a business, you're going to pay what you're willing to pay for a business. The owner is trying to sell it for what they think the business is worth. Maybe those goalposts are close enough together that you guys can make a deal. Maybe they're not where our value comes in. It's not necessarily doing a, an independent business valuation of that, because at the end of the day, I can give you a report that says company ABC is worth $555,000 and the owner's like, I want 1.1 million. Now you may think that, you know what, based on this business, I can add it onto my business. I'm going to have synergies. There's going to be economies of scale. I'm willing to pay 1.1 and, but at least, you know, that intrinsic value. And, and what we often find is as deals start to go through and as folks, it's the same thing in the litigation process, all of a sudden, maybe you're, you're on the, the five yard line to use a football analogy. And all of a sudden the other party's like, well, I want the, and I've, I've heard this, unfortunately, I want the dollhouse. Kids are like 15 years old. I want the dollhouse. And all of a sudden, all this work that you did is, is, basically out the window because now they can't decide on that. So take this to a, a business transaction content or a, um, situation. And now you're, you're right at the, right in the five yard line of closing this deal. And all of a sudden the vendor was like, Oh yeah, by the way, I want to keep that receivable. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's five grand on a, on a $5 million deal, but there's that distrust. I, I've seen where this can almost turf a deal, but if you know what the intrinsic value of that business is and you know, Hey, I, I know the business is worth 550. I'm willing to pay 1.1 million. They can keep that receivable because I know at the end of the day, I'm going, my, my upside is so much more than this $5,000 receivable. You can have comfort going into this. And I think at the end of the day, we, we really want to, to have assurance that somebody's not trying to screw us over. Yeah. That knowledge is power, but it's also comfort. Um, it can bring you some confidence in your decision making. Absolutely. And I think one of the things, I mean, you, you ask why hire CBV and I would take it one step further and say, what, what, what is GT able to offer? I mean, there's many CBVs at many different companies and having worked at a, a, a previous company before joining GT, um, I've seen the way accounting firms practice and I've seen how advisory, um, 
especially large companies work. And one of the things that we all say, kind of what's, what's your biggest asset? Well, it's my, my people. We all say it's our people. And, and the truth is, it is. I mean, these companies wouldn't exist without their people. And, and one of the things that we're able to leverage here at Grand Thornton is a national network. And again, many, many large international and national firms will say this. But I mean, I, I had the other day, we were, we were looking at um, a potential client looking to sell a, a company in a specific industry. And this was 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on Friday before the long weekend. And, and I sent out a request to the entire group of advisors and business valuation and corporate finance advisors. And I got an email back at, I think it would have been 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time of the, basically the national lead uh, for advisory being like, hey, we took this company, we were proposing on this, here's all the research we had on this industry. And that's within two or three hours of, of the request. So, so it, I think a lot of firms and a lot of people talk the talk, but we are really able to leverage a national and international resources. And I think we're able to provide an incredible amount of value because I may not have valued a, a company in one of your clients' industries, but I guarantee you one of our professionals from across the world has. And, and we're able to bring not only a business valuation lens to it, but also a transactional lens. And I think that's really important because, again, when it comes down to me being on the stand, being like so-and-so's business is worth X and here's the multiple, we, we have all of these this transaction history that we're able to pull from and really bolster our expert opinion. Nice. I, I, uh, I think we have uh, covered a lot of ground and I hope it's been useful for the small business owner or the not so small business owner that um, has any questions about, you know, the value of their business. Um, and if, you know, they're going through a divorce or something, hopefully they've, uh, they've got some information from us that's going to be, be helpful. Um, Jonathan, have we missed anything that you are, have just been dying to talk about? No, I, I think we've, I, again, I've, I've enjoyed this. Um, I, I should probably say that the opinions expressed in this video cast um, are those of myself and not those of Grant Thornton LLP. They are also not legal advice nor specific valuation advice. That's very important. You got to please the people that can take your license away. Right, Kim? <laughs> <laughs> I was muted because my bulldog was snorting right beside me. Yes, compliance is really important. They're the people we want to make happy. We have to follow the rules. <laughs> and I am happy to post any disclaimers that Grant Thornton would like to, to give to us to make sure that we uh, are above board. Yes. And uh, of course, um, if you listen to our podcast or watch these video casts to the end, you know that... Uh, we take disclaimers very seriously. They're at the end of every single episode. Uh, Heather and I are not providing legal advice either, as it turns out on these episodes. We're just providing general information. In fact, our disclaimer says we do our best to be right about something, but maybe we're wrong. Yeah, I am sometimes. 
Yeah, we make mistakes. We've even done like live uh, retractions of things said earlier on an episode before. So we have, yeah, yeah, yeah. Corrections time. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> list on the. I don't know if you've ever seen like the Saturday Night Live sketch where they're making fun of Fox News fact checkers or the oh, fact yeah. that they need to be fact checked so hard. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay, before we let you go, Jonathan, PhD. What is your doctorate in? My, my doctorate's in biochemistry. Um, I, did, I did virology research for the, the better part of a decade at the, the University of Alberta. Wow. Yeah. So uh, can you just tell us why you haven't already solved this pandemic? I'm busy. I'm busy helping our clients try to solve this pandemic. Uh, there, there's people that have uh, much smarter than I am, uh, hard at work at this. <laughs> how did you? How did you get wooed away from the seductive clutches of academia into being a, the world of being a CVV? Yeah, I mean that's that's a story for another kind of hour long podcast. But long story <laughs> short is, I, I was able to. Uh, to frequent a, a local pub that I uh, bartended a local pub that a lot of law students went to for a very long oh, time. Burns? Avenue Pizza. Oh. Uh, no. Uh, and, no comment. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I met my wife there. Um, and then at the, the decision to, to not pursue academia, it was what do you do with a PhD in biochemistry in Edmonton? And at that time, there wasn't a whole lot. And after uh, working for the government of Alberta for a little bit, I, my wife went to a business valuation for lawyers seminar and came back and said, Jonathan, she's like, I didn't understand a word they said. All I know is you would love this stuff. So I looked into the, the CVV program and then here we go, six, seven years later. Wow. Well, I think you provide a really valuable dovetail for a lot of lawyers because I think a lot of lawyers are like your wife, like their brains don't necessarily work in that, in the numbers or business way. So I think it can be very, very helpful um, to have someone like you on the legal team. So uh, just thank you so much for coming and sharing your knowledge. It's been super informative. Yeah. Well, thanks, Heather. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all. This is, this has been great. How do people find you? You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, also, my my email address is jonathan.lacasse at ca.gt.com. And again, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N dot L-A-C-A-S-S-E at ca.gt.com. And I would be more than happy to to have a call and, and discuss this. What would I find oftentimes? I mean, we have business owners reach out I need a business valuation. And what we find is oftentimes they don't need a business valuation. Maybe they're looking at, at selling their business and it's just more of the conversation that we need to have. Um, and, and I find half the time it's not the business valuation. Maybe it's some cash flow modeling. Maybe it's some, some work to, to prep their business for sale that, that is something other than a business valuation. Oftentimes for, for lawyers, we'll often, they'll call me. I spend a lot of my, my time talking people out of hiring me because I've, I've had lawyers say, Jonathan, I've got this client. He's a T Ford employee. He has this hobby farm. We need a guideline income. Uh, you look at it. The guy makes $60,000 as a hobby farm. That's six grand. You're going to pay me way more 
then it's going to ever make it worthwhile to to have me generate a guideline income report. So happy to be a sounding board um, and then just just chat. I mean, I'm we're all in the relationship business. I, I would love to, to build trust and, and again, um, just have those conversations. Mm. Great. That's great, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure to meet you. This has been another episode of Access to Justice. Thank you for listening or watching or both. If you have any questions you'd like us to address on the podcast, send an email to accesstojusticepodcast at gmail.com. That's access and then the number two, justicepodcast at gmail.com. And we'll do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. Kim, Heather, excellent as always. Jonathan, you just you hit it out of the park. It's fantastic. Thanks, folks. All right. Have a good day or night or morning. You too. Bye now. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member, Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member, Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Graceful fingers intertwine